Welcome to IMTV. I'm Alan Keyes and this is Let's Talk America. Uh, today uh, is uh, my usual get-together with Stacy Canfield. Now I have to explain to everybody, we used to call this segment of uh, Let's Talk America that we had every week, uh, The Three Amigos. Now you all have probably noticed for the last little while we've only been two. I think we're still friends, so I we're still so. amigos, uh, but there's only two of us. Uh, because Bob Sisson, who as you know is the founder and inspiration for IMTV, uh, he's gotten caught up in various other aspects of our ongoing endeavor, and so he doesn't have the time to come spend leisurely time talking with us and gabbing about the world as he used to. Uh, I hope I'll be able to persuade him to come on every now and again, Stacy. but it's only going to be the two of us. Though we seem to have been doing pretty well at that. Well, sometimes I'm of two minds, so or uh, you know I could talk to the other voices in my head, I guess, and we could still call ourselves the Three Amigos. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we might be the Four Amigos when I'm <laughs> divided in my mind. Uh, well, that will get you all used to it. We'll be back. We'll be talking about a number of interesting things today. Some of them centered uh, on the way in which these people who practice identity politics are trying to make us forget that we are all of us in some respect human beings. We'll be back right after this. Hi, I'm Alan Keyes. I just want to let you know that on a recurring basis every Tuesday, we're going to have a guest, Mike Adams, the Health Ranger. He's going to be joining us to talk about the whole array of challenges, both in terms of our health as a people and as individuals, and our health as a nation. We'll be looking at those things through the eyes of someone who has thought deeply about many things and who has many great ideas to share with me and with you and with everyone who tunes in to Let's Talk America on Tuesdays when we meet with the Health Ranger to talk about how we sustain the health of our liberty. Welcome back. Do you know, I find it interesting that we have made a kind of odd amalgam of two different crises, Stacy, that are going on in our society at the same time. One of them is the crisis involving the virus and the threat of the virus, in which I think they're trying to deal with us as one people by terrifying us all. So they're terrorizing us so that the only thing we really have in common is fear. And, and the fear then is what makes us one nation, but it's also what they're exploiting to get us to put on masks and stay at home and do everything possible to split us and dissolve us, uh, either into fearful uh, individual bodies in which we're just worried about ourselves and whether we're going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, or they are in, uh, inviting us to think of ourselves only in terms of identities that divide us. You're white, I'm black. You're Hispanic, I'm not. You're Chinese, I'm uh, uh, Native American. They want to think of us as all our different identities. But I ran across something today, and I wanted to share it with you uh, here at the opening of the show, because I think it's a good illustration of how, how wrong they are and how they're missing the point of what makes us American, all right? Shoot it. And, and I wanted to introduce this. Let me, let me uh, put this up on the screen here. Uh, uh, this is an article by my friend Judy Brown. Some of you have probably uh, watched episodes in which I talked to uh, Judy Brown. She is somebody who has been a champion in the pro-life movement. Uh, but as all people who are thoroughly pro-life, she really is a champion of respect for human life uh, and respect for human life requires at the end of the day that you show respect for what makes us distinctively human. Uh, what therefore gives us an intrinsic worth no matter how we are measured in the eyes of the world in material terms, right? And, and, and one of the people I've always thought deeply exemplified the ability to see people that way is someone known in the Catholic Church as Saint Damien. Um, he's called Saint Damien of Molokai. And uh, he was, as Judy Brown points out, a sterling example of what it means to be really pro-life, especially in human terms. 
Uh, he's someone who ministered uh, to people who were victims of leprosy. Yes? Uh, back in the days when leprosy was not a treatable disease. Uh, and he actually sought permission as part of his priestly vocation uh, to live in the leper colony on Molokai. As a result of that, he eventually came down uh, with leprosy and died from it. He succumbed to it in 1889. And as Judy puts it here, his sacrifice is still recognized as an ultimate act of love for those who suffered from the dreaded disease. Indeed, a statue of him resides in the Capitol building in Hawaii. And, and, the, um, and the problem is, as Judy points out, uh, that today, uh, not today, but in our present moment in America, uh, you have people who will look at somebody like this, and because they have this tendentious agenda, identity politics agenda, uh, they will do their best to act as if what we're looking at in the life of a man like this is somehow to be understood in terms of uh, their campaign against racism. So um, uh, this woman, um, Ocasio-Cortez, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, by the way, claims the, to be- The um, lovely um, AOC. Yes, the AOC. She claims to be a Roman Catholic, like myself, uh, though you'd hardly know it from the way she acts and talks and does everything else she so does. So do a lot. You know, have but, you ever noticed how many Democrats who are just radical, liberal, crazy, pro-abort, just far left-wingers say they're Catholic? I think, I think uh, uh, AOC, obviously. I think, uh, doesn't Biden say he's Biden, Catholic? That's and right. so does... Uh, 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 Cuomo. Cuomo, and also, what's her face, the Speaker of the House? Uh, uh, Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi, excuse me. Yeah. Stuck yeah. on her for a second. I have to say, it, it sort of sends shivers down my spine. I think in our present moment, though, I'm the one in terms of, of the uh, Catholic Church who's the odd guy out, not just me, I mean, but people like me. Uh, because guess who tends to talk a lot like those people? The not present, you. The present <laughs> Pope. Yeah. The present Pope seems to be on their side. Uh, which is one of the reasons I seriously doubt that he's actually an authentic pope, but I'll leave that aside. That's not the subject of our discussion. Yeah, let's not get into the pope. But, My mom uh, will kill me. <laughs> uh, but I, I do have to say that a lot of the things that he has said and done have left me in serious doubt that we aren't looking at one of those times. And, and admittedly, it has happened before. The most famous one, I think, was Alexand Pope Alexander VI. He was the father of Cesare Borgia. And you know the Borgia family, Lucretia Borgia, the famous poisoner, and the Borgia family who were, generally speaking, people uh, who would never fail to take advantage of your, uh, of your uh, vulnerability when they were trying to defeat you, especially if all they had to do was invite you to dinner and poison you. <laughs> that seemed to be one of their favorite things uh, to do, especially Lucretia's favorite things to do. Cesare Borgia was one of the focal points of Machiavelli's mm -hmm. famous The Prince. He was used as, a, as an example of all the various ways and machinations in which a prince could go about aggrandizing himself. Uh, and of course, this usually meant Sometimes, though I think it was in the minority of cases, you go out and defeat the enemy on the battlefield. Other times you do, th do things like uh, be all ingratiating to everybody. Then you invite those people, including friends and enemies, that you want to deal with. And when they get together in one place and you're having a nice uh, uh, dinner, uh, you have all the archers uh, get around the top part of the, the building gallery and you shoot dead all your enemies. That was one little trick. Well, that, uh, that, that, are, you look at fascism and communism. People. That's the history of really what they do yes, all along. I mean, if you look at Hitler, what he did, he had all these friends and everybody loved him. And as soon as he got into power, That's off right. they go. Same with, I mean, if you look back, almost every major dictatorship through history, I mean, Stalin did it, uh, uh, Mao, Mao did it. Did it. You, uh, you North go back Korean to the, guy has to, done to it. Rome and the Greece and those guys, did it. they did the same thing. When, as soon as they get yeah. into powers, get rid of him, get rid of him. I know he's my buddy. Well, I know he helped uh, me. But, but they also get rid of the masses. They, you know, it's, it's been a stock thing, and, and, and I don't know whether Machiavelli foresaw it or not, because he was mostly targeting you know, high-level people that were your competitors for power. Uh, and, and he would kill them by the scores, you know, or s recommend that they should be killed by the scores, by the dozens, whatever you want to say. 
Whereas in the 20th century in particular, um, aside from the usual kind of exterminations that sometimes took place after battles, uh, when you got the throne in your hands, you, did, you didn't usually just go around killing people by the millions. Uh, uh, sometimes religious things would lead to slaughters uh, and so forth and so on, but usually not. Uh, but in the 20th century, it was a standard practice. It was like they could not get into power without slaughtering 30 to 100 million people in order to consolidate the power, but also clean the slate yeah. so they wouldn't have to deal with a lot of opposition. And, and, and this is what kills me. I, I, I want to look seriously. I want to look you all in the eye out there. You really want a government that follows that kind of understanding to come to power in the United States? What makes you so sure you're not going to be part of the 100 million people they kill? 30 million that they're going to kill right off the bat is what I've been reading, uh, which would be par for the course for them. Because one of the reasons well, they stay you, in power the fact that we is own because guns. they we own the guns. eliminate everybody. The ones that, the ones that are who really would be the fascist, more, more likely fascist, are not the ones with guns, except for the military. Well, guess what? Uh, and I'm sure, I hope anyway, that people out there have realized this. We're living in an era where we've been scared into believing, falsely, by the way, if the uh, America's frontline doctors are right, we've falsely been accepting the notion that this COVID virus has no remedies, has no cures, has no treatments that's going to save you from death, right? So in fear of it, we've accepted all these stipulations, and the goal is a global vaccine, universal vaccine. And what has Bill Gates been doing with these vaccines? Uh, well, according to reliable information and protests in Africa and South America, which uh, were, by the way, inspired by the fact that they took the vaccines, had them tested, and found in them elements that were intended to sterilize women, hmm. keep them from having babies. This was particularly true in Africa, and a bunch of the bishops in Africa got together, protested it. Uh, a bunch of civic officials got together, protested it, and so forth and so on. They are, after all, Bill and Melinda Gates, head of the population reduction, uh, that's their little um, foundation, is all about reducing population. Well, that's a way to reduce population. Get everybody to take a vaccine that then uh, makes them sterile. Or a little more direct way, since you really do, according to Bill Gates, you have to get rid of you know, several billion people to get from eight billion or so down to around a billion at best. And, and that's going to require either a lot of killing, right? Uh, or it's going to require, well, a lot of surreptitious killing. Well, you could, could say this whole disease would, you could say the disease is one of the four horsemen. I mean, first off, I want to, I want to get rid of this, you know, we can talk, talk about the China infection. I think we need to start calling it the election infection. And that's what this is a real push toward, to get us under control by the election scare everyone to death, keep everyone from going out, going to the polls and voting. And I think a lot of times what they want to do is push mail-in balloting. That's one of the big things. You could say it's population control, and I could probably agree with you. There's well, a lot see, of that I also. don't think it's population control because I hadn't quite finished. But um, it is population reduction, but it's not control. It's extermination. Hmm. And if you introduce through the vaccine things that sterilize people and things that kill people, uh, I was talking about it earlier on a program today because I had read just recently an article by Merrill Nass talking about the fact that when they were running, and are, they're still running, tests supposedly of hydroxychloroquine, the tests are actually being conducted on the basis of dosing people with four times what is recognized as the acceptable dosage. So you're over the acceptable doses by four times, and then they, they say that this doesn't work, this doesn't work, it kills people. Of course it kills people because they're not following the directions. If that is actually happening in the tests, and you then remember that contrary to the usual practice, the vaccines that we will be exposed to, some of us may be forced to take, I hope not, I hope our representatives aren't stupid enough to allow that. But we may be in a position where they'll try to force us to take vaccines in a context where this kind of mass murder mentality has been involved in the testing uh, and where in an even more radical fashion than usual we will not be able to sue the companies that produce the vaccines 
for any of the bad effects, nor will we be able uh, to get any kind of redress of grievances that deals with the deaths and the uh, losses that people are going to suffer for trying to take care of themselves uh, when you're dealing with the effects of the vaccine. That's all a way of much. saying I'm just gonna say that, that they're going to be free. Just let me finish. They're going to be free with what's being set up to introduce into these vaccines things that may kill us. And when Bill Gates then gets before the world and says, we can't return to normal until everybody in the world has been vaccinated, um, as if that's some kind of permanent solution, when in point of fact we know it's not, because just as with the usual flu, it's a different influenza vaccine every year. And it will be a different COVID uh, coronavirus vaccine every year. And therefore, you'll have new opportunities to introduce new ways of degrading the human uh, uh, Listen, ability to survive. We've got a 99, a disease. If you get the disease, you've got more or less almost a 98 or 99% survival rate. Even if you get it, this is much ado about nothing. We're really, well, I'm sure there are, yes, there are people dying. Yes, it's never been but, good. But, but, but I mean, there are people dying needlessly. There are now but the out there are so three. Small, it's no, not even no, valid. three. Uh, look, one murdered person can involve months of trial in this I country agree, because we believe. Excuse me. We believe that every death has to be accounted for we under our laws of justice. We are not going to shut down justice. the economy for one day, I didn't. Though. I didn't say that. All I'm saying is there was never any need to shut down the economy. I agree. Because as people are now coming forward. The doctors in this America's uh, frontline doctors are physicians who've been on the front line treating patients and who now are coming forward to report that amongst friends, families, patients that they've been treating to the tune of hundreds of people, they have treated them with a regimen, in this case of hydroxychloroquine, uh, uh, combined with zinc, uh, as, as I recall, yes. uh, and, and, and azithromycin. Uh, and and they've been cured, yeah. Uh, nearly in every case, 100 percent. People not dying. Therefore, as the lady put it at the press conference, nobody needs to die. And if anybody's been dying, and they claim that thousands of people have died, if anybody's been dying in relation to this virus, those deaths are in fact procured by conscious neglect of the respect that is owed to the life of every single human being in this country and by our understanding of decent ethics in the world. You don't get to murder people, and they are murdering them. Well, I just think we're, listen, I'm not saying there, there aren't people dying, and I'm not saying those lives are worthless. I'm saying the steps that we're taking are way too far. Some of them, I think, are virtually useless. Us masks, I'm sorry, I'm not a big mask. I'm a free breather. I'll be the first to admit it. But I don't think, you know, a disease that escaped a level four, uh, you know, community or where, wherever lab, facility, yeah. a level four lab, I don't think my little daisy print mask is going to stop something that got out of a level four lab. Well, see, but I, that's what makes me think that they're actually preparing us for something else. Because the same thing that gets people docilely to put on the mask will get people to do something that not everybody's been happy to do. I have heard that. And that is take the vaccine. Why are they so desperate to have us take a vaccine when they put no emphasis? Wait, let and me finish. And a marker. When they marker. put no emphasis whatsoever on letting us take things that would help kill the virus, right? Uh, and other things like chlorine dioxide, which kill the virus and help you deal with the respiratory system for long enough to develop antibodies, which is the same effect as the vaccine. In other words, the, vac the body naturally produces antibodies. What has happened is that the speed with which the respiratory syndrome takes you out outpaces the body's work of producing the antibodies. You get something like chlorine dioxide into the system, and what happens? You are able to breathe more easily for longer. You don't die of the severe respiratory syndrome. And in the meanwhile, your body produces the antibodies without the vaccine. They, it, what I'm making the point is, they want this vaccine. And they don't want it because it's going to help you with coronavirus. I think they want it for some other reason, because we don't need it. A lot of people have said the vaccine is something they really want more than the cure, because then they can 
more or less separate people who has taken the vaccine, who has not taken the vaccine, and that way they can uh, uh, more or less start tracking who the, the true believers, good people, the good followers are versus who is not a good follower. Well, that's one way, but why wouldn't we just think as well, because Bill Gates, unfortunately, is about this, that they're going to simply do what he did and introduce into everybody's system things that will help them reduce the population. Well, if they start doing chips, goal. if they start in inducing chips, I've heard that too, they want to start injecting people with chips, I'm going with for Doritos. So hopefully... Well, uh, you know, I, I think that this is actually, and, and part of the way in which these things are put over on people and have been in the past, as I think they were in Nazi Germany, for instance, and elsewhere, and, and we're all familiar with this, but we don't think it through. Uh, the phrase, the big lie, right, uh, is one that's characteristic. If you tell a small lie, you'll get caught. If you tell a really big lie, people won't be able to take it in. They'll have the reaction, no, that can't be. I remember that. You're, you're talking nonsense and so forth. And so they die. And so their civilization dies. See? And, and, and what I think we're confronted with is a systematic, deceptive narrative Intend us, intended to prepare us, in particular as a population, but also the whole world, uh, to succumb until finally they're able to, yes, weed out people who are going to be troublesome to them, reduce numbers so that they are controllable, and introduce the global tyranny that the communists have dreamt of since Marx first spoke of it. Well, you keep hearing them say things like, you know, if you don't wear a mask, you're killing other people. I mean, there are certain people I'm wondering, well, how much more do we have to do? Well, if you do wear a mask, you might be killing yourself. Louis Gohmert uh, is, is on record now saying that he thought that it was the wearing of the mask that actually led him to get it. Hmm. Um, and when you think about the fact that what, if you have picked up the virus, there's going to be a concentration of the virus there. You might have, your body might have been dealing with it. Your immune system might have been dealing with it. But if you concentrate it, and then the buildup of carbon dioxide, whatever, uh, helps to weaken your own immune system and, and consequence, you'll be right to develop the severe respiratory system. Now, he hasn't yet, but you could be. Netherlands has said, and Sweden have both said, there's virtually no effectiveness to wearing a mask. That's right. You know, I, I have to question it. Why? Why? You know, have you heard him say, you got to start putting on gloves now? Well, what happened to that? Remember for a little while, about two weeks? Everybody said it was so important everybody wear gloves. That whole glove thing just disappeared. Now they're going with face shields. You got to wear a mask. You got to wear goggles. Well, you got to do anything. You know, you don't be in that big bubble suit I for too long. Basically, you've got to do anything that turns you into a ridiculous, subservient, little slavish uh, um, uh, person willing to go along with any nonsense that they tell you you've got to do uh, so that you will willingly go along with the vaccine and ignore all of the warning signs that something tendentiously bad and evil is involved in insisting that to deal with this pandemic, everybody has to take the vaccine when if the frontline doctors dealing with it and dealing with their patients right where it happens are looking at us and saying, but wait a minute, nobody needs to die. So why do we all need to take the vaccine if nobody needs to die? Alan, what if they came out with a vaccine tomorrow and said, we want you to take it. What would you say? As uh, a leader of the community, of a speaking well, I, I, voice, I'm against taking the vaccine that has been exempted from the kind of procedures that allow us to take them safely. Uh, and, and I am convinced that evidence is out there that because we relaxed procedures following their arguments, there are people today suffering from various problems, including learning disabilities, autism, other things of this kind uh, that are traceable to the vaccine. I've read a lot about this. You can think what you want, but I believe that that is the case and that therefore we shouldn't be stampeded into suddenly getting absolutely careless with a vaccine that this man wants to give to everybody in the world. That's never happened before. And should we let it happen now? I don't know. Uh, so I Bill Gates well, came up with one, said it's been through all the FDA approvals. It's the FDA, FDA approvals FDA have been approval. truncated to the point of being non-existent. Now, that's what I'm talking about. You need to look into that. Uh, they are not going to be going through some strict procedures, and even the people they test on are not going to be typical human beings. They're looking for people who are uh, above average in terms of their 
health, their immune system, and everything else. So you test it on the strongest in order to give it to everybody, including the weakest. That's a recipe for introducing those who aren't so strong to death. Uh, anyway, uh, we've got to take a break. We'll be right back. More IMTV episodes? We are now streaming through Roku. Roku is a device that enables you to stream entertainment to your TV through your internet provider. The starting price is only $29, and you can purchase one either online or through your local electronics retailer. It's easy to use, and you won't have to worry about missing any more IMTV episodes. IMTV, changing the world. Podcasts are great when you're a multitasking person. You can listen to them around the house, when you're out in the car, when you take a walk. Now we have put our shows on to podcasts, and you can listen to Let's Talk America uh, on podcasts. You can find them at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, and other apps. And while you're there, subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out on our new episodes. Thanks for listening and supporting us. Together, we're changing the world. Uh, I'm, I'm now going to take the conversation, if you don't mind, Stacey, back for one minute and, and, and a, uh, I think a brief discussion now that we've covered a lot of the, the uh, deeper aspects of it. But what I was getting to when I raised Ocasio-Cortez was that here's a guy who gave his life in what I think would ordinarily be recognized as sacrificial service to people with a disease that ordinarily made them pariahs, right? And he went in, he, he himself got the disease, but that was uh, a, made him a candidate for sated because it was an example of Christian courage in the sense of spiritual courage. Not in the sense of go out in the battlefield and kill people and all this, no. But in the sense of taking a stand for life, living it out every day so that you do not treat human beings who are sick as if they have somehow been degraded from the status of humanity. What allows you to do that is obviously a spiritual way of looking at them. Because no matter what happens to our body, no matter how ugly and sick it gets, no matter how putrid it becomes with this or that disease, the truth of the matter is our spirit can still be in there, all shiny and clean, depending on our relationship with God, depending on how cleanly we walk the walk of showing respect in the midst of our suffering for other human beings. And here was somebody who exampled it. And you know what Ocasio-Cortez calls this now? Do tell. She calls him a, a, a um, what does it say? Um, indeed, she recently and mercilessly referred to St. Damien's statue in the Capitol building as an example of white supremacism. And I, I have to say, these people exploiting uh, the white-black difference are exploiting me, so I get to have an opinion about it. And my very definite opinion is that when you start looking past the good lives, the good deeds of individuals, the good commitment, the good heart that led them to lead a way of life that most of us would find difficult to the point of impossible. And then somebody like this who couldn't resist the temptation to put on the fancy clothes and get the fancy apartment, she didn't even want to live for five seconds like the ordinary folks she represents. And she gets on her high horse and says that a man who was willing to live amongst the disease, knowing that he was likely to catch that disease and die from it, is a white supremacist, rather than a sterling example of the spirit that transcends color, the spirit that transcends ethnicity and nationalism and brings us together on the common ground of our human conscience and our human vocation toward God and one another. What's the matter with somebody like this? Well, you got to look at what the government is doing. They're shutting down the places where places of worship. Uh, the Supreme Court, John Roberts, complete waste of time, let me down once again, which is getting to be a regular thing for him, hmm. saying he wouldn't even take up the case of two different standards, one for church, one for casinos. The churches in Nevada are being shut down. The casinos are being opened up, but they had different standards for what they could allow in for people. I think they really want us to take people out of church. They want people not to be have fellowship with other true believers. They don't want people to really take a risk of saying, you know, I'm going wrong among people who may have disease, but I'm still going to love them. I'm still going to minister to them. 
I'm still going to preach to them. I'm still going to talk about the, the diseases that they may have or whatever and talk to them about Jesus. And they are shutting that down fast and furious. Well, what that always calls to my mind, Stacy, is the fact that, that, let us be frank about it, Karl Marx hated religion. He hated it, deplored it, decried it, and, and thought of it as one of the great scourges of humankind. Oh, Seattle, they're burning Bibles. So, yeah. I mean, so, they're throwing, they're having book burnings. So that's, that's, they, I was like, oh, they're, now they're showing their true face. They're having book burnings and they're burning the Bible first and foremost. Well, that what bothers me also, though, is that they're now killing folks. Um, and um, who was it who had a good column? Chuck Norris had a good column. Chuck Norris? At World Net Daily. He writes for World Net Daily. I did not know and, that. And he's done some good work for years uh, um, writing, writing columns, producing columns. Uh, and he wrote a column in which he listed, uh, uh, to talk about Black Lives Matter, he listed the black folks, including a businessman who had uh, been, uh, been killed because uh, he expressed appreciation for Trump, including uh, the police, uh, uh, former police captain who was killed early on in all of this, uh, and several others. And so black lives only matter to these people when they can exploit the life in order to pursue their ideological agenda. Otherwise, that life is worthless enough to even be killed if it gets in your way. And that's what I think Americans are going to have to stop and think about. Um, because what threatens the very people they claim they have so much respect for, and yet will kill out of hand if they get in their way, will destroy their neighborhoods, will expose their children to potential starvation by looting the, the stores and everything. If Black Lives Matter to you and you do that kind of stuff, uh, and then you go out and start killing on black folks. Uh, it seems to me that black lives matter to you only as cannon fodder on your way to power. Uh, it reminds me of the way Hitler treated uh, homosexuals uh, when he was rising to power. Uh, and he used them and lifted them up as, as his uh, cohorts uh, when he was trying to terrorize people and all of this. Uh, and, and once he got a good hold on power, he systematically slaughtered them. Well, if you look at BLM, for me, I think BLM stands for Burn, Lert, uh, Burn Loot, and Murder. Mm -hmm. uh, but I saw a neat one. I thought maybe I'd get a hat for uh, you or Bob. It says it's BLM. It says Black Lives MAGA, which would be sort <laughs> of. Uh, I wonder how they would feel about that if you had that hat on. Well, they'd probably kill me. I, they probably if would. I put it on, they'd probably kill me. <laughs> um, uh, they, they, they. Well, y'all out there know that if they watch these shows, they're probably ready to kill me anyway. But. <laughs> Uh, does that phase me? No, not in the least, actually. I don't think it phases most people who are trying to speak the truth in this society today. Uh, and, and I'm praying that it doesn't really affect most Americans, that they look at it. At first, it's an appeal to your goodwill. Oh, I, 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 we really do need to get over the racism thing. Yes, I, I've, not a, I've never practiced racism. I don't care about racism. I like black I people. I want to go I, against you know, racism yes, exactly. and so forth and so on. And, and so everybody's anxious, and that, that's something good about us. Didn't you think that was good? I think that's good about us. Uh, and it belies their statement that nothing has changed, because a lot of hearts have changed, and a lot of hearts that were repressed in the 1950s when I was growing up, they didn't like it, but they didn't speak out against it, didn't do anything against it. Nowadays, those are the very people who have changed, who have opened their own lives to association with the black folks and, and things of this kind and who don't think, except when Black Lives Matter people force them to think, they don't think in necessarily in racial terms. Uh, but uh, So we've made progress and they want to try to deny it. I think that a lot of people are getting confused when they ha hear Black Lives Matter. Most people, as a slogan, they're fine with it. You know, listen, if you want, I, I'm not against black people. I like black people. I really like some black people. Why shouldn't I like black You know, they're fine with that. But Black Lives Matter, as far as an organization, and when people start saying, I don't like Black Lives Matter, they're usually talking, I've never heard anybody say, saying anything, but they're talking about the organization. The organization is pro-socialist. They talk about one of their goals is the destruction of the traditional family. That's right. uh, the, the, I mean, they want to destroy more or less almost everything and everything that has built well, this country up. Let me, let me, uh, let's explore that. And that's that. the Black Lives Matter that people don't like. Let's explore that for a minute because I don't quite understand how anybody can read that part that says they want to destroy the family and not realize who they really are against. So let's ask a question. 
What is the most important thing, in your opinion, that family life offers to us as individuals? I think it's structure of learning of, of, of traditions and family mm -hmm. and, and building that up myself. Mm -hmm. Well, the, but I've often thought, and, and I think this, by the way, because of my own experience as a father from the moment it started, right? Um, because I, I, this may be hard to fathom, uh, but having experienced different kinds of love in the course of my life and so forth and so on, uh, and including the love of my parents, I, I had always been a little hesitant to believe that I was going to be capable of showing to my children the kind of love they showed to me. Why? Because the love that your parents show for you, good parents of course, I don't mean bad parents yeah. who are all selfish and neglectful, but good parents, parents like mine, they, they didn't have much. You know, they, they, they were, my father was, you know, uh, he was in the military, but at that level, which you start out, you're just a kind of working class Joe. And you rise up in the ranks to the point where you get to be somebody who may be, uh, you know, the equivalent of uh, a, a supervisor of, you know, your fellow workers. That's the sergeant majors and people like this. Uh, and that's how he retired. But all his life, uh, he was basically a working man. Uh, and I was raised in that context. Uh, people who uh, manage to keep a roof over your head and feed you decently and so forth and so on, but riches not at all, fancy stuff not at all, vacations considered uh, when I was growing up, go around vi visit the relatives. It's a very inexpensive way to change the scenery and the personalities without having to spend a huge amount of money and we did it every year pretty much. Uh, as we got to know uh, people and revisit the uncles and aunts and so a lot of But that's all pro-family stuff. That's all pro-family stuff. That's all pro-family stuff. But I didn't know when, when my, uh, before I had children whether I'd be able to show that kind of dedication. And the reason I raise all of this is because it turns out for a lot of us I think because I've talked to other people about this that the first time you hold your child, the first child in your arms, you realize that, yes, you know, the, the child is somebody for whom you will give up stuff. And, and my wife and I used to sit around sometimes in the course of the early years of, of child rearing, and we would, we would make a list of the things we used to love doing that we didn't do anymore. Like sleep. Uh, well, <laughs> it was sleep. It was things like go to the movies, go to concerts, uh, go out and see things uh, that we have, um, you know, hadn't seen or, or, or done in a while. We uh, have dinners out and so forth. So you just restrict yourself a lot. But that's not the only thing. It's just examples. But it happens, and you don't, I didn't at least, feel any kind of resentment or, the, uh, or anything because it's like you're slain the first minute that they're there. And I can remember going in at night and watching my first child um, when, when he was asleep and feeling a kind of gratitude to God that we were doing well enough that he slept like he didn't have a care in the world. There was no tension, no fear in his body, just absolutely open to the world, meaning to say cared for. Isn't that part of the love of parents shown to children, by the time you reach a certain point, it has to be tempered in various ways and disciplined in various ways. But you have a solid grounding in the thought that you are worth something and that your parents have lived as if you deserved all the attention and care and sacrifice they put into you. That sense of individual worth is part of what a good family life inculcates in each and every child in various ways, isn't it? Uh, well, how do you get that from a nameless government? You don't, and actually I think we, we're really trying to twist, or the left is really trying to twist it around the other way and turn it into commercialism or, or uh, instead of having the family stuff. My mother came from a family of eight. Great lady, great family, mm -hmm. great kids, and they grew up she was a single mom. I mean, mm, her father, mm. her, my mom's father passed on very young in life. And uh, so there were eight kids and one mom who had a banker's, you know, bank uh, teller's income, not a, not a lot of money. But they said, you know, we never realized we were poor. Most of us, they didn't, they said, we didn't realize mm. we were poor till we were like in high school. We'd go to visit our friends and they had a lot of money. She said, I had two pair of shoes, a pair of Sunday shoes and a pair of go to school shoes. And uh, she said, we thought we we're just fine because we had love, we had family. 
But when we went to other friends, oh, oh, we're poor? Oh, okay. You know, she heard them over talking about, oh, so-and-so's over here at the house. They're a good family, but they're poor as church mice. And she's like, she's talking about us. She didn't realize they were poor because they had such a great family life. And now we're trying to get the Black Lives Matter, some of the other movements are trying to destroy that in, in place of commercialism or, or whatever the government tells you you are. It's just destroying a country. But, but don't you think, when, when I sat down years ago and started looking into uh, Mar Karl Marx and all of this, and, and I often tell people, though I regret it, because I thought at the end of it it was a great waste of time. Um, I'm, I'm with, because, uh, you know, Das Kapital is a dry, dusty tome. Uh, and um, as a, as a uh, piece of writing, I, I don't think it's worth the time to bother with it. But also, I think at the end of the day, a serious thought about economic life, it just also misses the point. But uh, leave that aside, I, I, I went through it and so forth. But the thing that most seriously bothered me about it all was this, this uh, sort of combination of moral indignation and materialism. But if you're a materialist, and a materialist world is a world in which uh, that's, that's where the SH happens attitude comes from. You know, things happen. You know, it's chance. It's fortuitous. And then you're fighting, you're battling in material terms to try to develop enough of a material base. You have a little shield to hold up, a sword to slaughter other people with when you want to get more from them, and so forth, at least in a figurative sense. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog business. It's a battling world that doesn't offer much hope. And the triumph of communism is a triumph in which you've essentially, uh, through the proffering of a delusion, you lead people down a path in which they are once again willing to re-enter the slavery that with all your moral indignation you're decrying, right? You're a slave to capitalism, you're a slave to the nobility, you're a slave to religion, you need to become free in a Marxist sense, and then they make you slaves again. That's cute. It's kind of an interesting ploy. But why would anybody who saw through it give in to it? You're just going with one form of slavery to a worse one. Uh, and, and, uh, and then they start attacking America, where in point of fact, they're saying this country is during June the 19th, bringing over slaves. I think that this country actually not only began, but began again and again and again, time and again renewed itself, because people came here looking for the possibility of a dignity and a worth that they could prove through their own hands and actions, and they found it, and they built it up, and they cherished it, built families and built others who would have the same sense. And now these jokers come along, want to reestablish the rule of the many over the, the rule of the few over the many, and then they're going to tell us that they're making a big difference. It's not like the enslavements of the past. It's all lies, y'all. And if we give in to it in this country, we have lost our minds. Well, we, I think we are. I, if you look at the media today, if you look at the news today, you have what is really just a majority of white people complaining about white people for being white. I'm like, you're white. Why are you complaining about your whiteness? And, you know, forgive me for my skin color. I am what I am. You are what you are. It's all good. Let's just be humans together instead of saying we are both human beings. We don't need to be segregating ourselves by race, religion, sexuality. These are the things that divide a house, and a house divided against itself will not stand. That's right. Um, I have to say, though, you know, I was once challenged. It never came, uh, came out, but I got an invitation uh, from that Oxford Union thing where they have debates to go over and debate. Uh, and the subject uh, was uh, about you know, uh, things of this kind. And when I was thinking it all through, I came up with a concept. Uh, it had, partly after reading Solzhenitsyn's account of what happened in the Soviet Union, other things were going around in my head. Um, and the title of the talk that I was going to give us, the introductory talk, which I never got a chance to give, uh, um, focused on the fact that uh, we human beings are facets, like the facets of a diamond. And the facets of a diamond each of them has its own particular way of processing the light, yes? And those differences are part of what make the diamond uh, glisten and sparkle in that seductive way that they do. 
Uh, but even as they do that, they also have something in common that lends itself to both the light and what seems sometimes like the heart of a gem, right? Where there is something in it that has a light that's all its own, that, that isn't just the sparkle of the facets. Um, and I thought that that's part of America. We're not trying to suppress these differences and pretend that they don't exist because they're parts of God's design. We are like the facets of a diamond in our differences, facets of God's design. But we are nonetheless in our humanity, one precious gem reflecting his spirit, reflecting his light in all these manifold ways that are nonetheless still evidence that we shine with one spirit. Um, I, I never got to give that speech, but well, that's I've a good thought one. about I it I like the way times. that goes. That I've could be a good one. I've thought about it many times. Um, and it's what they're trying to tear us away from. There's something about this country that is not just material success. It is a spiritual hope that actually translated and could still continue to translate into a reality that introduces us to something beyond our differences, even as it affirms that those differences have a purpose, have a worth, have a beauty, so long as we bring them all together in harmony. I, I question, you know, are we really starting to see it? Because obviously the, 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 the riots that are going on, people are getting sick of it, I think. I think that's something that Trump sort of let run a little while so people could get sick of it. If you also look at the, the Major League Baseball and the NBA, uh, now they're all catering to the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think people are just turning it off. They've, all mm, right, mm. I've had enough of this. You look at the numbers, and people are sports starved. I mean, I love, I'm a sports guy, love sports. Mm. I couldn't stand myself to watch. It was like, okay, you've got your moment, all right. Okay, you've got Black Lives Matter on your jersey. Okay, you've got it on the pitcher's mount. Okay, you've got it here, you've got it there. When is enough enough? At some point, just play the game. I want to see you play the game. I watch sports yeah. to escape from well, public, but public media and stuff like that. One of the things I always found remarkable about sports, probably not as much as others that I know, but, but, uh, but still, is that very often sports were a way as you moved through the world from place to place, from neighborhood to neighborhood, from state to state, from country to country even in, in some ways. That, I don't know, sense of interest in the, the individual team, other kinds of ways in which human beings express their capacity through a united effort, right? And the enthusiasm that they can generate and the, and the common sense of fellowship. Um, it brings people together and that's sports about. And that they're introducing it now and all the players are forgetting that part of their vocation is to touch that aspect of our lives which when that extraordinary catch is made, when that extraordinary hit is made, when that extraordinary basket is floating uh, through the air and it lands, some part of our humanity responds to that. And when you look over a crowd on one side and the other, whether there's the opposite team, whether they're different races and so forth and so on, somewhere in us we respond from the same place with admiration and appreciation for what that individual has just done. They want to take that away. They want us to look upon sports as if it's just part of the divisiveness and the ugliness. And I think that that's a crime to steal from us. Uh, what is in some ways a good example of our decent communal sense of what we all aspire to, represented in people of all different kinds who learn to excel. These are people who, it's sort of hard for me to believe, people who are literally making millions of dollars a year. This is their golden opportunity. This is their platform. That's great. You don't have to destroy that. And they're saying, you know, America is terrible. And they're like the epitome of, wait a second, you get millions of dollars for playing a game that you enjoy. Millions of dollars a year. And you're saying America is terrible. You're running off, you're running off the court because they're playing the national anthem that helped bring you all these riches, what you could, something you would not earn in any other country in the world. There's not a. What, but you know where, where you maybe could soccer, especially, maybe soccer. You know where That's you could especially it. not earn it or enjoy the kind of life they have been able to enjoy? You, you couldn't do it in a communist country. That's right. Because 
your sports weren't going to be nearly as important as your ideology, and therefore the fact that you played well wasn't going to be as important as the fact that you were slavishly licking the boots of whatever sick lies were on the party propaganda uh, mill for the day. Uh, they were able to make something that made them the admiration of many different kinds of people, and they were able to do it without the need, unless they wanted to do so voluntarily, to sacrifice their souls in the process. Uh, and I think that that's something a lot of us don't appreciate enough, that that's a chance that not everybody in the world ever had. Uh, and we're going to throw it away now, following these people who continue to make the same false promise, while everywhere in the world they succeeded. The only result was slaughter, mayhem, oppression, deprivation. And whether you try to convince me, oh, look at the communist Chinese, how great they are now. No, what I look at is the willingness of a regime to sacrifice people by the thousands so that they could spread to the world a virus that they hoped would bring down their chief competitor. I don't appreciate it. It's not a frame of mind I think we indulged in uh, because we got out there and competed, and we still do. And we compete now against people we helped to lift from the defeat we inflicted on them after World War II. Um, and, and I can't forget these things. It's why I will not give up. Not my love of this country, not my love of its premises, not my love of its people. I won't let them take any of it away from me. Uh, ponder that. And then join us again here at Let's Talk America.